Okay, the conversation that we are about to have is one that we do every month. It's an extremely important conversation, but of course, it's never a welcome conversation because today is the day that BC's latest overdose death statistics have been released for last month. 1,068 people have died from a fatal overdose in this province so far this year, which is higher than the number of deaths total for last year, for all of last year, which was 983. So joining us to discuss these new stats is Lisa LaPointe, BC's Chief Coroner. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thanks for having me, Nikki. Can you go over the numbers with us that were released today? Yes, so in August 2020, there were 147 illicit drug toxicity deaths in the province. And that represents a 71% increase over the same number uh, last August, uh, but was a little bit lower than the numbers that we saw in July. So this year, uh, certainly as you noted, the numbers of deaths um, are significantly higher already for the first eight months of the year. And we continue to see so many people dying unnecessarily in this province of drug toxicity. um, And we're five years into this public health emergency. What do you think has changed from July now that we're seeing a 16% drop in overdose deaths from July to August? Well, one of the things that we saw during the early days of uh, the COVID-19 was, you know, of course, the social distancing and people were staying home. Uh, There was less access to uh, naloxone, to the overdose Uh, prevention sites, uh, supervised consumption sites, to drug checking services because of uh, just reduced services. There just weren't as many people uh, available to provide those services uh, given that people were staying in in more. And so we we believe that that was a factor in the increase that we started to see over those months. We also know that we're seeing larger numbers of extreme fentanyl concentrations. So a more toxic fentanyl supply in the province, and we think that is also playing a significant role. So last month, uh, services were starting to come back, starting to ramp up again, and um, and fortunately, we saw the number of deaths drop. But I think what that tells us is that this is a pretty, um, well, clearly a very challenging issue to address, and that the emergency responses that are in place, the drug checking and the um, the widespread uh, use of naloxone uh, are keeping people alive, and that's fantastic, but not addressing some of the bigger issues around uh, prevention, treatment, recovery, safe supply. Uh, Those are much more challenging and are taking longer to implement. So if those types of solutions are taking longer to implement, although, like you said, we are seeing a return to resources now, do you think it is too soon to feel optimistic that this trend, this dropping in numbers, may continue? I I am very hopeful that we will see the numbers of people dying drop significantly over the next months and years because, you know, since... Um, since 2015, we've seen thousands of people die in this province as a result of drug toxicity. And um, you know, prior to prior to 2015, we had approximately 300 deaths a year, um, which is still 300 people who died as a result of, of uh, toxic substances. But the increase since that time has been um, astounding and 
so disturbing. So, you know, a drop down to 983 last year, it was good compared to the 15 over 1500 deaths the year before but it's not a good number and um i you know i don't want us to think that this is a new normal and that it's it's acceptable that we have so many hundreds of people dying every year uh, certainly the families that my service interacts with um are are just devastated by the loss of their loved ones and it's just a, a terrible tragedy and a and just such a concerning public health emergency. Uh-huh. The number of men dying from a fatal overdose increased in August, but it dropped for women. Why do you think that is? Well, it dropped for women back to the pattern that we had seen previously. So we saw uh, an increase in um, uh, the number of women dying over the COVID period. And, and what we what we theorize, and it's very challenging because we can't, of course, we can't get information from the person who died, so we don't, uh, and often they're found alone, so we don't know exactly what, what they were taking or what they thought they were taking or who they were with, if anybody. Um, but what we have thought in the past is that there's a bit of a protective factor with women um, uh, tending to be with somebody else when they're using a substance, and so if they get into trouble, there is somebody there to call for help. Um, um, men more often using alone and therefore being much more at risk of dying because we know that using alone is a significant risk uh, when using illicit substances. Lisa LaPointe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an important subject. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, it's no surprise at all that the economy and health concerns will be front and center in this upcoming B.C. election. But of course, there are other issues that need to be addressed in our province. And typically in an election cycle, the environment plays a significant role. So what role will it play in this election cycle? To speak more about this, I was pleased to catch up with George Hoberg, who is a professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC. Hi there. For the majority of this year, George, our provincial government, like basically every other government around the world, has really had this one major focus, which, of course, has been dealing with health and economic concerns related to the pandemic. However, typically in an election cycle, the environment comes up as being a big concern for voters. How do you think the environment will rank this year when it comes to voter priority? So it's too early to tell. I know that's a cheap answer. But one of the impacts of the snap election is we don't know what issues the opposition is going to prioritize, as in the both the Greens and the BC Liberals. Uh, we know that the Greens will prioritize environmental issues, but they're only going to get traction if that really resonates with the public. And so the big question really is this year – does the public have an appetite to uh, prioritize environmental issues over the other uh, highly um, salient ones that they're focused on right now, which is essentially uh, keeping people safe in the pandemic and uh, keeping food in the house around the the economic issues. And those are are such important things to people's direct sense of um, safety and well-being that in circumstances like that, it's natural for environmental issues to, to, to drop down in priority. Yeah. And, you know, that unfortunately really seems to be the ongoing battle for those who'd like to see environmental policy more highly prioritized. You know, while clearly important for our existence here on this planet, 
the environment isn't often an issue that politicians address unless they think it's going to improve their chances at getting elected. Right. But so I but I do think there will be dynamics around that. It just really depends on 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 how it resonates with the public. Climate change is an issue which has been huge lately for quite a long time. And we did have a big burst of uh, of interest in climate change in, in late in 2019, which had a big impact on the federal election. Uh, I don't know if that has endured uh, given the pandemic, I, I, and I doubt that it has. The Green Party will push the NDP to want to go further on that stuff, and the Liberal Party will want the NDP to, go, you know, will want the government to go slower. So we'll have, just have to see what issues they choose to make uh, significant. Yeah, even when we look at big issues that could brew back up again, considering everything that's happened this past year, we may forget that the year began with pipeline and railway blockades in protest of the construction of the Coastal GasLink pipeline on Wet'suwet'en First Nations territory. Do you think that that issue will come back up again in this election? I think it'll be a very big issue because I think the Liberals will use that as a way to attack the NDP. Uh, I think they're going to have to be very careful in how they do so, given the uh, difficult issues in Indigenous rights that are at stake. But I definitely think that will be an issue. Uh, it's uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the Liberals will sense NDP vulnerability on it, and it's all tied up into the future of LNG in the province, of which there you know, is still a lot of contestation. Absolutely. I think we all remember very well the Trans Mountain Pipeline project and how that played out. I mean, we had BC NDP leader John Horgan saying that he was going to use every tool in his toolbox to stop that project. And then we remember we engaged in the pipelines versus grapevines battle with Alberta, where for a short time they were boycotting BC wine. And then in January of this year, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the B.C. government does not have jurisdiction to regulate the flow of bitumen through our province. And kind of that was that. But do you think that the handling of that issue could affect the B.C. NDP one way or the other? Is this an issue that the Greens or the Liberals will come after the NDP for, for how they handled it? I don't actually think it will make that much difference this year. It has been an extremely polarizing issue, but the NDP did, I mean, they didn't do everything. They didn't use every tool in the toolbox, but they did enact a very significant piece of legislation. They pushed it through the process. Uh, they were rejected. Uh, so they, they kind of fought the big fight on that and lost. Liberals can't criticize them for, you know, for the fact that the pipeline has been approved and is going forward. The Greens might attack them for not doing some other things that they had an opportunity to do. But I think Horgan is actually in a pretty good position on that one because uh, they can say that they uh, they did the things they had committed to doing. In your opinion, what other issues may the Greens or the Liberals go after the NDP on? Promises that the NDP made in the last election, which over the last couple of years they may have fallen short on. One of those items in particular that comes to mind for me is the promise to ensure proper protections for endangered species in this province. Yeah, so I think the uh, Greens will probably try to make endangered species legislation an issue. Um, that hasn't resonated strongly enough uh, as a political issue. I think the old growth forest thing may actually have more legs. The NDP did appoint a uh, task force on that. They did uh, defer logging in some areas, but they didn't go very far with that and they went very slowly with it. And uh, that's an issue which I do think uh, could come up if the 
again, the Greens are able to have that issue resonate with the public. And that, that's really the dynamic that I, I'll be looking for. What issues the other parties choose to push and then how that resonates with the public. Um, another one out there is always the, the site C Dam, which has been out there for a decade or more now. Of course. And, uh, uh, you know, the NDP and Greens had agreed to do a study about that. And we all thought the NDP was, after the study was done, we thought the NDP was not going to approve it. But they felt boxed in by the decisions of the previous government. Uh, but still, so it's being built, but it's not going very well. They're having some slope stability problems. Costs are increasing. It's being delayed. And so uh, that's going to be an issue about uh, government management of that project. I know that you've said how you expect these issues to play out really depends on public appetite and what the opposition decides to prioritize. But based on each party's own history and public reaction in the past, how do you think that the Liberals, the Greens, the NDP will navigate these issues this time around? I think the Greens will try to make some element of a Green New Deal the centerpiece of their platform. And so they'll push the NDP to go further. uh, And the Liberals will do exactly the opposite. The Liberals will emphasize how much the existing measures adopted by uh, the NDP have cost business and uh, propose that they be slowed or delayed. Right. No surprise that we'd see the Liberals lean more towards the economic side of matters, which certainly is a major concern right now. And to be honest, given that tension in the current situation, Horkin actually looks pretty good because he's in the middle on that stuff. Um, And he's been around long enough and has currently enough popularity that he may be able to weather those conflicts. Of course, the big question about the election, again, is not I I doubt it's going to be about environmental issues. It's going to be how people view Horgan's leadership, including his decision to call this election early. Do you think that this could be a bit of a troublesome election for the Green Party if environmental issues are not at the forefront of people's minds? Do you think that this could negatively affect the number of seats they end up with? Uh, I think the Green Party might struggle this year. They have a brand new leader. The change in leadership changes the nature of the party. Andrew Weaver was a famous climate scientist and and an extremely effective climate advocate, but he also was pretty mainstream on some other views that was able to attract people who would otherwise vote for the BC Liberal Party but didn't like the NDP, perhaps because they were considered socialists or pro-union or whatever. And, And the Greens were able to make inroads in that way. I don't think that will happen in the same way Uh, with a new leader that's not Andrew Weaver. We're speaking with George Hoberg, a professor in the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC. George, in summary, when it comes to how environmental issues are going to play out in this election, for you, what's the one big takeaway here? The issue is, I mean, what I look for is the polls that come out that talk about what issues are important to the public. And and we'll find out whether climate change or other environmental issues rank anywhere close to pandemic management and economic management. Uh, I would be surprised if they did, but I, I would be pleased if they did as well, because uh, climate change is a very uh, urgent challenge that uh, governments continue to need to push forward. And then what about if we broaden that scope? What is your one takeaway on what you think will be the largest issue in general in this BC election? Uh, it's all about leadership on pandemic control and economic management around that. And uh, Horgan has been very effective at 
maintaining credibility on those issues thus far. The big question is what impact his early election call has on that. Parents with kids in schools are so focused on keeping the kids safe, themselves safe, their parents safe, etc., that it's going to be, you know, it's going to come down to really a gut feeling about who to trust moving forward on the pandemic. Well, George, fascinating conversation. Thank you again so much for taking the time to chat with us. Great to talk to you. Well, on Monday, the province announced 366 new cases of COVID-19 for a three-day period over the weekend. And yesterday, 96 new cases were announced, bringing the provincial total to 8,304 cases, with no new deaths over the last 24 hours. Currently, there are 1,456 active cases in this province and over 3,300 people in isolation. Now, today, we're going to get another update, as we always do, from provincial health officer Dr. Bonnie Henry at 3 p.m. And of course, you can hear that press conference live right here on CKNW. Now, as case numbers increase, we are left to ponder, could there be a second wave? Could this be the second wave that we've been warned about? Well, one man who is trying to address the concerns of a potential second wave is Usu Kim, an associate professor in megatronics at Simon Fraser University. He's working on 3D printed ventilators. They're a cheaper option than the traditional ventilator and the ability to 3D print them makes them more readily available. I spoke to Kim and I asked him, how do 3D ventilators work and where did this idea come from? Mm-hmm. So... I have been working on these uh, a portable ventilator, especially 3D printable, because uh, we are uh, living in the era of um, democratization. I want to uh, mention this again, the democratization, because uh, manufacturing and all the uh, uh, biomedical devices are uh, mass-produced, and then we, we can purchase it uh, somewhat expensive with the expensive money. But uh, we want to make all these uh, manufacturing and fabrication to our community's hands. So basically the concept I'm interested in is um, sustainable city or the fabrication city, which puts manufacturing back in, in the hands of community by reusing resources and uh, facilitating sustainable and local production creation. So I'm very interested in um, helping uh, someone who needs in this pandemic in terms of ventilator use. So as an engineering professor, we designed these uh, portable ventilator, which is 3D printable, and that we can tune the mechanical property of the airbag to, uh, to customize depending on the uh, patient's needs. For the 3D printed ventilator, how long would it take to make this? Well, um, this is a bit different concept with the mass production, but uh, when we talk about the printing process itself, um, it will take, let's say, once design is fully uh, verified, then 3D printing and an assembly will take about um, two or three days. That doesn't seem very long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what about the cost? cost, we would like to focus on to make a cheap version, uh, cheaper version of the uh, portable ventilator. So we want to target uh, around less than 500 or $600. Wow. So where are we in the production of these? Because this certainly mm-hmm. sounds like something there would be a demand for. 
Right. So um, there are a long way to go yet. Uh, basically, a lot of approval process in order to be implemented in the field or in an actual life. But uh, we are planning, uh, I mean, prototype is ready at this moment. And then we want to improve that prototypes to make a, uh, some better actuation system um, at the end of this year or on early next year. Then the, uh, the collaborators, uh, industrial collaborators, and then the hospital, uh, the Vancouver General Hospital collaborators will be verifying them by having some focus groups study. And then um, maybe middle of next year, we want to make some medical approval. Then it's going to be uh, useful. So this is something that we could see used to help those who suffer from COVID-19 if the virus continues, say, into 2021, which some have speculated that it could. Right, right. And unfortunately, we, do, we know nowadays another virus will come later. Who knows, right? So even the second wave of the pandemic or third uh, wave of pandemic situations, we, we are preparing that kind of situation, right? That is really interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you so much, Nikki. Well, earlier this afternoon in Ottawa, we heard the throne speech delivered by Governor General Julie Payette, which promised to help deal with the economic consequences of the pandemic. Now, it was a long speech. So to recap the key points of what we heard, David Aiken is Global News' chief political correspondent, and he joins us now. David, thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, but uh, an hour long, 7,000 words, um, you know, a little long, longer side, historically speaking, but uh, I guess that's the times. Lots to talk about. Now, I hope that you didn't have to count all those words yourself. They sent that info to you, right? We've got software that does this counting. No, oh, I didn't goodness. count it myself. <laughs> now, the Liberals, they said that this was going to be an ambitious throne speech. By your measure, was it? Well, uh, Child care, pharmacare, elder care, going to plant two billion trees, going to create one million jobs. This goes on and on for the progressive uh, side of the political spectrum. Sure, you could say it's ambitious, all these things that the liberals talked about today. But as some progressive politicians, notably the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, said as soon as it was over, it's like, you know, liberals, you promised all this stuff before, and you never delivered. And Pharmacare is a great example where the Liberals promised Pharmacare, a national Pharmacare plan, in its first speech from the throne for this parliament uh, before the pandemic and hasn't moved on it. You remember when Greta Thunberg came to Canada? Thunberg, Thunberg, how do we pronounce that? Anyways, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> when she came to Canada, Trudeau promised to plant, if it wasn't a billion trees, it was two billion. I can't remember. But they haven't planted one tree. And now they're promising to plant two billion. So I think there's something for the criticism that Yes, the Liberals had lots of ambition in this particular throne speech, but um, uh, but their criticism from the left is that they just don't uh, deliver on it. And then on the flip side, the Conservatives, it, you know, the, the criticism there is, um, you know, nothing about pipelines, nothing about oil, nothing about controlling, uh, you know, some fiscal anchor, because we do need to at some point to get control of the books. So it sort of depends, I guess, on which way uh, you look. And, of course, if you're a Liberal, if you're, a, you know, you voted for the Prime Minister, uh, this is the kind of thing you like to see. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, though, isn't it? They can promise the world if they want to, but if they're not going to follow through on that actions, well, then, you know, here we are again, still waiting for a little bit more, desiring a little bit more from this government. And I know you just kind of hinted at this, but one thing that we are really looking to see from this government is how they're going to address this massive debt. 
Yeah, and and they're, they're I mean, quite simply, they've been asked about this uh, for six months, and they just are not. And I think they've judged that the political temperature of the times is that's a low priority for most Canadians is the debt. Uh, yes, the, the policy wants can say, oh, Canada, and Canada does have, you know, relative to its peers, a reasonably good fiscal position despite all the spending. And yes, we're going to probably hit a trillion dollars in total government debt, um, you know, very shortly this year or next. Um, but it's, it, I think the, the, the Trudeau government says that's not the big issue. The big issue for most voters is, is health. I want, I want to be healthy. I want my family to be healthy. I want my kids to be healthy when they go to school. The problem with a lot of what the government talked about today, um, child care, pharmacare, elder care, keeping kids safe, that's all provincial responsibility. The, the federal government can't do much other than say, you know, hey, BC, you need a couple of million dollars for something to do with keeping kids safe. And it's really up to the province of BC to decide what, how, how we'll spend its money. And so already one of the reactions we've seen, and oh, surprise, surprise, it's from Quebec, which is always very jealous of protecting its jurisdictions. The Quebec Premier, Francois Legault, has already said this is a disappointing throne speech because it did does not respect provincial jurisdiction, precisely because it was the federal government saying it was going to do something on child care, pharmacare, elder care. Um, Doug Ford, the Ontario Premier, saying a real missed opportunity because just last week, the premiers, and it would have included at the time Premier Horgan was still part of this council, um, you know, was saying to the saying to the federal government, feds, we need some help on health care. Forget about the pandemic. We're just talking good old fashioned wait times, quality of service in general. And they'd asked for seventy seven billion dollars in new health care spending. That's not related to the pandemic. And there was nothing in here. So, um, you know, it, it, the debt is one thing. Yeah, sure. But I think Canadians are looking at health and they're they're. The, the Trudeau government recognizes that, but there's not a lot they can do. They have to rely on the provinces for making sure citizens are safe. Did they offer any concrete way in which they intend to address flattening the curve in this country? Not really. I mean, and again, this goes back to the fact that they have very little uh, tools at their disposal. And, and through right. all of this, and I think, I think it's been the right call, is to say the situation in B.C. or the situation in the Lower Mainland is going to be different than on Vancouver Island or in northern B.C. Or, for that matter, remember, we've got the Atlantic bubble. Uh, you know, you go anywhere in Atlantic Canada, you've got to be quarantined. So it's quite appropriate that there's, there is not a federal one-size-fits-all approach on what we're going to do on, on that. That said, um, the feds, there was some language in the throne speech to say where there is public health authorities that feel overwhelmed, not enough testing capacity because there's a surge or something. I think there's going to be this sort of flying squad of health professionals that will drop in and help you out with your testing capacity, but not a lot of details. And in fact, this is one of the things about throne speeches generally is you don't get the details. You, you, you listen to a throne speech and at the end of it, you go, okay, it sounds interesting, but uh, how are you going to do that? And how are you going to pay for it? And those are all the questions that will be answered later. So we, we got some general shape of what the government wants to do, but we, we're really short on a lot of details and short on any funding commitments. And, you know, one thing, one thing I should point out, too, is we're six months into the fiscal year, and we still don't have a federal budget. And a federal budget is the foundational document for any government in a given year on its spending plans, on its revenue plans. And, you know, the excuse has been, well, it's too uncertain, we can't do it. But you know, a lot of people say, and I think there's a lot of parliamentarians would say, you know, put a budget together. And if we have to change it, change it. You can put two budgets out in here. But the announcements or the, the, the speech today has some 
does have some ambitious, expensive plans. But again, if you're a parliamentarian, I'm not sure how you can approve any of this but without a budget to say, where are we going to be in three years, five years, uh, presumably once this is over. So, so lots for the MPs to chew on in this one. Well, and something else that they brought up in the throne speech today, which I think will be challenging to address in a concrete way, is tackling systemic racism. Yes, that's, I mean, that obviously has been an issue that sort of really pushed its way to the forefront uh, um, in the last, what, six, eight months or so. And the government is, again, uh, saying some nice things about this, that it has to do something and task forces and we will address this. Um, one of the important things, actually, I, I mean, I shouldn't diss it, is what they call disaggregating data that the federal government collects. And so right now, the federal government, Statistics Canada, for example, when it collects data and publishes data, it, it's, it's colorblind. It doesn't acknowledge that there may be different wage outcomes for visible minorities versus non-visible minorities. StatCan only recently started publishing the, the monthly jobs data on unemployment rates. And so we've been able to see, aha, there is a higher unemployment rate for black Canadians, for uh, Asian Canadians, South Asian Canadians. Um, So that, I think, is an important thing the federal government can do to uh, help Canadians understand how different groups in society are experiencing different outcomes on everything from wages to finding housing to you get it. What to do about it? Well, those are, you know, TBD, details to come. Mm-hmm. And the role of women in the economy was specifically addressed in this throne speech as well. Right. And again, lots more uh, nice words. So, for example, I don't know if you're... That seems to be the theme of this, this throne speech, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, so there'll be an action plan. And I'm reading right from the throne speech. An action plan for women in the economy. Okay, great. Um, super. But, you know, I, I suppose women who are worried about getting back in the, in the economy, they don't want an action plan. They want action. Right. That will be the first thing. And I know that there's, a, I mean, lots of people have said that the most important thing to help women get back in the economy to, to tackle the she session is child care, is to make sure that women have somewhere, you know, the burden of child care by and large falls on women. We all know this. And how do we make sure that women have safe, affordable uh, access to child care? That's important. And the government recognizes that. But once again, here we are. We haven't had a national child care program since 2006 or beginning of one. And that's when Ken Dryden negotiated one with the provinces. But then the government fell and that that child care program and Harper government took over. And that was the end of that. It's hard to do a national child care program, again, because different provinces have different ideas about how they'd like to have see that go through. And it's their responsibility. The only thing the feds can do is cut a check. Right. Now, what is the early reaction being from other party leaders? You know, it's I guess it's been predictable in this sense. So the conservatives have the biggest group uh, in the House. And don't forget, just to remind everybody, this is a minority government. So at some point, and it may be several days, it may be a couple of weeks before there's a, a confidence vote on this speech from the throne. And if the Trudeau government wants to, you know, maintain confidence and avoid an election, they're going to need one of these parties to support it. So let's break it down. Conservatives, nah, they hate it. They don't like it. Uh, interfering in provincial jurisdiction, not enough about pipelines. Uh, they're not voting for it. Um, the Bloc Québécois uh, sort of took their lead, not surprisingly, from the Quebec Premier, which is this thing interferes in, in provincial jurisdiction. But so far, we haven't seen the Bloc really definitively say which way it will vote. I suspect they vote against the speech from the throne. That's my hunch. And that leaves us with Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. And uh, again, Jagmeet Singh was out earlier saying it's more pretty words than the Liberals. And that's true. 
but they are the pretty words that the NDP tends to like to hear. So, so I can see the NDP at some point saying, we will take the prime minister on his word that he is going to finally make good on these promises and do something about all these things he said, childcare, pharmacare, elder care, housing, you name it. And so they will vote in favor of the throne speech. Now, when we get to details of some legislation, that's when I think the NDP may desert the government. And in fact, there's legislation before the House already that deals with what happens when the CERB expires. And it expires this week, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And already the NDP are unhappy that the, that the government is not going far enough with supports for those who will no longer have the CERB. There's going to be a new EI program, but then there's going to be a new program for those who don't qualify for EI, the self-employed, for example, some gig workers, and the NDP wants a much more robust program for those folks. So you can see the NDP voting against that, and that will be a confidence vote. But the Bloc Québécois has already said they like that package that replaces the CERB. So then the Bloc votes with the government. So this is going to be the dance I think we're going to see over the next few months, where the NDP maybe supports the government here and there, the Bloc supports the government here and there. I don't anticipate the Conservatives getting much behind uh, the Liberal program. And we worked our way towards possible an election in the spring. I think that's, that's the buzz around town at this point. David Aiken, thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah, no problem. Have a great afternoon. Have you ever been to Fright Nights before at the PE? Well, as you'd expect, things are going to be a little bit different this year for Halloween, and that includes Fright Nights. To find out more about how the PE will be adapting to the COVID 19 pandemic this Halloween, I had a chance to speak to Jeff Strickland. He's the PE's Vice President of Operations. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate this. Absolutely. You guys have had to make some pretty serious pivots this year. Looking back, how do you think that your summer season went? Well, it's been a year of, uh, you know, a lot of challenge, but a lot of innovation and a lot of focusing on things that we can do. And uh, we couldn't be more proud of the um, the events that we've been able to in consultation with Vancouver Coastal Health to ensure that everything has been safe, but also to engage our team and to really be able to um to do the things that we love doing. We love producing events. We love entertaining our guests and we love being part of big times like summer traditions and Halloween traditions and things like that. So uh, we're not just going to, you know, roll over and hide uh, and wait for the pandemic to clear up. We of course want to be as relevant as possible. We need to keep our staff working as much as possible. And uh, we're in this business to have fun. And that doesn't necessarily mean we need to stop just because um, we have to do things differently. How many people have you been able to keep employed through the pandemic? Uh, well, we, we are still deeply cut in, into our roster with layoffs. But um, for every event that we're able to put on, we're able to recall different staff, whether they're frontline you know, parking employees or our trades employees, um, even our management staff that, are, that have been on some layoff have been able to be recalled for um, some of our events. And, uh, um, you know, as, as we keep going with momentum, we keep working towards uh, getting our full team back together so that we can one day again put on all the large events from concerts to trade shows to, of course, our annual fair at the Peony. Mm-hmm. Stuff that's all uh, such a tradition for people in Metro Vancouver to partake in, just as Fright Nights is. Fright Nights such a popular event at the Peony. Will you be able to do Fright Nights this year? 
we will be able to do a Halloween experience that is going to be, uh, I think, just as um, enjoyable as Fright Nights. Um, we had two objectives going into the fall. First and foremost, we thought Fright Nights is one of our favorite events. It's one thing that we're very proud of. It's it's grown over the years uh, when we first started doing it, probably 12, 15 years ago. And we know that it's a tradition of Vancouverites, and it, we need to provide that Halloween uh, mature content, scary uh, in, uh, experience for our guests. So we are uh, very pleased to announce that uh, Playland will be transitioning into Slayland, a night of a thousand screams. And this will feature um, all our rides and attractions. It's a, it's a regular business operation for Playland to be open at night. Obviously, we can't have the haunted houses and the confined space and the large crowds. So we have a very reduced capacity. So I'm sure most nights will sell out because of the low capacity. But we have all our props and our actors out in the park now as opposed to in the houses and we have um, scary walkthrough zones throughout the park and we have some actors and other bits of entertainment that are, will give everyone that that um, that scary uh, sensation when you're walking through the park especially at night in the fall it's it's pretty spooky to begin with and uh, and so we're really excited to launch Slayland uh, for the first time this year to provide that Fright Nights experience to our guests. Fright Nights Slayland where do you guys come up with these names? <laughs> <laughs> you should see the creative conversations our team has uh sometimes it's a bit worrisome when it comes to fright nights how gory we can get but uh, uh our team is just really uh, creative and we love to be able to have fun and do things like this um the other objective for this year that we're really excited about i know there's been a lot of chatter about um halloween and trick-or-treating what are families going to do for halloween uh families are our core demographic and which we cater to almost every day and we are very pleased to share with you um, that we are putting on a, a Taste of the Peony drive through that's a tricks and treats edition where families can come through our site driving in their cars and it's a trick-or-treat course uh, through Hastings Park and um, it's it's something that um, can provide a solution for parents that are a little bit worried about sending their young ones out into the neighborhood. Um, I know that there's a, there's a lot of debate about um, trick-or-treating. I was listening to Linda Steele the other day talk about it and it's a very polarizing topic so we just wanted to provide a solution as well for families to come on out have that halloween experience put on your costumes and drive through the sites on october 30th or 31st and uh, we'll uh, we'll provide the treats and um and the tricks all you have to do is put on your costume get in the car grab the dog even if you want and come on down and um, we'll provide that halloween experience at hastings park the peony that's fantastic that sounds like something that could turn into a future tradition for the peony Absolutely. You know, all these little things that we're doing, uh, the Father's Day barbecue event in in, uh, in June, the barbecue and custom car shows and things like that, we thought this could be an annual tradition. Or Canada Day, the drive-through parade we had, this could be an annual tradition. So we are evolving uh, the P&E before our eyes and we're having so much fun with it. And we just, the, the response from our guests and the community has been so great that um, when people cheer us on, we just got to keep going and that's what we're doing. This year will be Slayland. In the past, I have done Fright, Fright Nights. I did it once, uh, and I learned that I don't really enjoy people with chainsaws jumping out of dark corners at me because it's terrifying. <laughs> will it be yeah. as scary with the pandemic rules in place this year and the changes that you've made? It will be as scary. The um, We have world-class props. We buy um, our props and our animatronics from uh, the same uh, per, uh, the same companies that uh, Universal and the big parks in the U.S. buy theirs from. So uh, we have um, 
world-class uh, production um, quality uh, assets and uh, cast members that will be scaring you throughout the park. It'll be a different type of scare. It won't be the type uh, where you jump and grab, you know, your group of friends that you're with, because of course we need to keep people socially distanced. But um, there's going to be some really cringe-worthy um, uh, scenes, and it's definitely a, a mature uh, environment. Uh, so it's mostly catered to adults, although children do often come to Playland. Uh, it is more um, on the mature end, so we will scare you, I'm sure, if you come. Uh, obviously, we're not going to jump out and 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 make you. Uh, jump and, and grab people but uh we um will provide an open air uh walkthrough experience where um you will have a lot of fun and you'll still have that sense of scare and now what about for people who want to come dressed up in their costumes what do they need to know this year for coming in costume to the peony be it for for Slayland or be it for that drive-through experience you were talking about the, the trick-or-treating with the kids yeah, for Slayland and Fright Nights, we typically welcome uh, guests to come in themed. Uh, but of course, face uh, coverings in the past, we uh, and we will continue with this. We don't allow masks or face paint because we don't want there to be any confusion with our cast members and the guests. I and mean, sometimes we don't want guests to get overzealous and get into the into the mode, of course, of of uh, providing extra scares. So we do want to delineate between guests and our staff. So we do ask for people to not come with face paint or masks on, but by all means. If if you want to go in costume or theme, um, we're all for it. And we want to encourage people to wear their costumes, in fact, with their friends or to come in different theme nights that we're looking at producing as well so that we would um, have opportunities to come multiple times, perhaps, or even um, to drag out some old costumes that you haven't worn in a few years um, to come to Playland with that. And then on the drive through trick or treat event, uh, there are no restrictions as long as you stay in your car. So we are um, encouraging little ones to put on their Halloween costumes that we know they're so excited to wear and uh, to come through our um, event where we'll have more of the family-friendly themed entertainment and, of course, providing the tricks and the treats to all the families that come through that event. Great. Now, what do we need to know as far as dates that this will be running? What is admission? Hmm. That kind of info. Yeah, we're really excited to open up Slayland October 9th. These will all be operational in the evenings from 6 o'clock till 10 p.m. Um, it is $39.50 for your admission, which is a it's a lower price point than your traditional uh, uh, fright nights. Um, and we also have very limited uh, um, capacity. So we are expecting most nights to sell out. Um, so my advice to anyone would be to uh, get your tickets quickly. Um, and then... Uh, the Playland, or sorry, the Taste of the Peony drive-through, the Tricks and Treats edition. Uh, right now, we're looking at October 30th and 31st. Obviously, trick or treating is something you want to do on Halloween or very close to it. And we're looking at 4 p.m. till 8 p.m. on the 30th, and then from 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. on the 31st. And we are looking for um, tickets there to be purchased in various time slots so that we can have control of lines and ensure that the experience is a great one. So that is a $25. Um, admission price for the car which includes the trick-or-treating and the bags of uh, goodies and uh, and there is an opportunity to buy extra bags uh, if you want to load up your car with extra people so there's an option there as well all tickets for both events can be found at ticketleader.ca jeff thank you so much and uh, wishing you an, an early happy halloween always a pleasure nikki thank you so much and happy halloween to you too well, it's never easy being a student. You, you have a lot to juggle, don't you? Studying, finishing assignments, those dreaded group projects, and of course, getting ready for exams. But on top of all of that, you now have to deal with COVID-19 and how that impacts everything that we do. 
Well, life for Langara students could get just a little bit easier as they'll be receiving more than $30,000 designated to assist students through the pandemic. Our CKNW contributor John Jang has more. Good afternoon, Nikki. Some really great news as we learned this morning the WISAC group to celebrate their 40th anniversary had raised $30,000 for BC students that are in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the WISAC group partnered up with Langara College to help the students there with this money, which can be used in a variety of ways. And to explain more about the money in this partnership, I am now joined by Moira Gukstetter. She is the executive director of the Langara College Foundation. Moira, obviously, this is really great news for both Langara College and the student body. But tell us, how did this all begin? Um, well, we have a wonderful par- partnership with WISAC, uh, who's been a contributor f- to us for the last few years. And it's their 40th anniversary this year. And uh, their president, Oscar Virgi, uh, came to us with a proposal to make us their charity this year to help students in need. Well, that's really great to hear. And I'm glad that Lingara has a chance to help the student body here, as uh, many students are obviously facing stressful times, not just with their studies, but through the COVID-19 pandemic. So tell us how this is going to benefit the students. We're really here right now to to help our students through COVID. And as an ongoing piece, um, our students have so many financial challenges. And during COVID especially, uh, we've seen an increased number of students accessing our bursary funds uh, uh, as well as we've got a community cupboard which uh, helps provide uh, food security to students in need. And we're fundraising right now uh, for our hamper program in particular, which will help, which has just helped students with back to school hampers. We funded uh, just over $40,000 uh, to support back to school hampers, and we're now working on fundraising for the holidays. We know the holidays are going to be especially tough this year. And Also, um, a new project for us is we're working towards uh, increasing the number of laptops that we can have available to students on loan. Uh, We know with uh, moving online, the stress of having uh, the right uh, technology is uh, often something that our students uh, are coming back and saying we need more of. I was a student about uh, 10 years ago now, and I remember not having a laptop then. I still don't actually have a laptop uh, for personal use, but I remember when I was in school and I was going to lectures and I was in class, I always felt like I was playing catch-up to all my peers who did have laptops, and that was 10 years ago. Now we know that laptops have grown so much that you can do basically everything possible with the laptop. Absolutely. Uh, we did a survey just as uh, our students were moved online in the spring to really know and understand where the technology gaps were. And we found that about uh, 31% of our students that responded were actually using their smartphone as their first line of uh, communication um, and use with school. And uh, further to that, about 56% uh, weren't able to have access to a computer for more than, I think, three to four hours a day. So when you don't have the proper technology, it makes it really hard uh, to be successful, as successful as you want to be with your academic pursuits. And what's great, too, is that this money, the $30,000, won't just go towards supplying more uh, resources like the laptop, but resources to go and get mental health help, because we are understanding now how important that is. And like I sort of mentioned earlier, students are facing a very stressful time as we're going through an unprecedented pandemic. And, you know, even without a global pandemic to be worrying about, students always stressed about exams and projects. But now it has just really been magnified. 
I think students are str- students struggle all the time, um, and mental health is something that that we're all very aware of. And at Langara, we've put in place some additional supports uh, to help our students uh, through the movement to online, and uh, whether it's through counseling, uh, whether it's through our student engagement office, and, and offering more. Uh, engagement and social connection options uh, for students. We're really trying hard to make sure that, that students are supported uh, and are able to, um, to to live healthy and, vi- and viably through through the pandemic. And I wanted to learn more about the Hamper Project you sort of mentioned a few minutes ago because this Hamper Project, uh, I understand students will receive kits to get them ready for school if they weren't able to do that beforehand. But this Hamper Project also helps those that might identify as uh, low-income individuals and also single parents who obviously find themselves in a challenging circumstance and probably need more help than most others. Yeah, so we've been doing a Hamper program during the holidays for over 25 years. And when the pandemic started to hit, we knew that students were going to be struggling. Um, we knew they were struggling as we went online. We knew they were going to struggle as they started uh, the new school year. And so we started back in June to fundraise and uh, to put in place a, an expanded program for hampers in the back-to-school time. So um, we know that um, it's, it's just not it, – it's it's students, whether they're domestic or international, it's students, whether they're single parents, um, students with families. Uh, a student is a student, and there's a, much need out there. We distributed uh, just 279 hampers um, two weeks ago, and that was the first time we'd ever initiated the program away from the holidays, and we anticipate the holidays, again, will be probably more subscribed than, than we had for the need uh, back to school. One of the things I remember being a student uh, back 10 years ago was that I didn't always know where and what resources were available to me. I might have been guilty of my own ignorance with that, but the fact that a student has to go and focus on schoolwork, you know, assignments, projects, finals, and things like that, you're not always thinking about all the extracurricular things such as mental health help. Uh, you're not thinking about financial assistance. You're not really worrying about those details, but it's there. And so for a student listening right now that's going to Langara, hearing about the $30,000, hearing about all the resources available to them, what's the best way they can reach out and maybe apply to benefit from this assistance program? Right, so we're fundraising right now for the um, for the uh, laptop lending project, which we hope will get get going later this fall. Uh, we will do um, our normal campus communications to let students know there. Uh, and um, in terms of of the hamper program and our ongoing um, community cupboard program and financial aid, uh, we've got information that's up on our web. We socialize. Uh, regularly so that students are up to date and there's been a a, a a really important communication protocol that's been put in place to help support our students um, through the pandemic so there's regular communication with students to to let them know of different supports that are available Well, I want to thank you for taking the time this afternoon and speaking with us about the great news. $30,000 going to Langara College in partnership with the WISAC Group, who are celebrating their 40th anniversary. Moira Gutstetter, the Executive Director of the Langara College Foundation, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and thank you to WISAC as well.